Welcome to Religion for Life, a program at the intersection of religion, social justice, and public life. Religion for Life is a co-production of WETS on the campus of East Tennessee State University in Johnson City, Tennessee, and WEHC on the campus of Emory and Henry College in Emory, Virginia. My name is John Sheck. I'm the minister of the First Presbyterian Church of Elizabethton, Tennessee. For the last several weeks, I've been interviewing scholars who are offering different views of the historical Jesus. This is the last of a four-part series entitled, Will the Real Jesus Please Rise? I'm saving my favorite, I suppose, for last. Dr. John Dominic Crossan sees Jesus as an historical figure, but not an apocalyptic character. Through his parables, according to Dr. Crossan, Jesus described a kingdom of God that we can participate in now if we want to do so. He has written over... 25 books on the historical Jesus, earliest Christianity, and the historical Paul. And he is with me via Skype from Florida. His latest book is The Power of Parable, How Fiction by Jesus Became Fiction About Jesus. Dr. Crossan, welcome. Pleasure to be with you, John. Well, the subtitle of your book, How Fiction by Jesus Became Fiction About Jesus, raises just the obvious question, is Jesus a fictional character? And the obvious answer is no. In fact, in the middle of the book, when I switch from the parables by Jesus to those about, I take a classic case that probably most people know about the crossing of the Rubicon because it's kind of a cliche expression for point of no return. And it's quite clear that uh, Julius Caesar was an historical character, that he did cross the Rubicon in 49 BCE. But all the accounts we have of it are heavily what I would call parabolized. Uh, whether one approved of it, that transition to invade the Roman homeland or whether one did not determines exactly how one tells the story, whether there's a spectral figure forbidding him to cross or a beautiful woman, you know, with a trumpet telling him to cross. Even he, when he himself tells the story, he never even mentions the Rubicon. So I give seven examples from Roman history of different versions of that crossing. But none of those versions, while clearly parables, invalidate the existence of Julius Caesar. It simply means that we know a lot of history better through parable than we know it is straight fact. So then if the Gospels are parables, that is fictional stories in which Jesus is a character, uh, the protagonist, um, they, he, he can keep both the historical person of Jesus and the literary figure of Jesus at the same time. In fact, you must, because one of the points I make that we, we tend to forget, and I, I do it myself as well, of course, we speak easily of the four Gospels or the Gospels of the New Testament. We slip into the plural without even a thought. But most of the first century, first Jewish Christians would have been horrified at that plurality. Paul would have jumped up and down. He would have insisted, no, 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 there's only one Gospel, the big G, but we have it in different versions. Uh, the big the gospel is Jesus himself, of course, the historical Jesus or the incarnate word, as you would say it one way or the other. And we have four versions, and they were quite emphatic about that. They called it the gospel according to, kata in Greek, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So they never thought of them as four gospels. They thought of them as multiple versions. And I suppose if you could have four, you could have more of the one and only gospel, which is Jesus. So they were telling us that a gospel is now my language, is sort of a mega parable, and therefore you can have more than one, about an historical figure. 
So in your book, uh, The Power of Parable, how fiction by Jesus became fiction about Jesus is, is written in two parts then with the interlude that you talked about uh, with Julius Caesar crossing the Rubicon. And the first part uh, then consists of parables that Jesus told. And the second part are the gospels that you see as parables about Jesus. So starting with the parables Jesus told, is that are his parables really the window into the historical person? That, that, that's, that's where we find the real guy. Well, you find the real message especially because there is a close correlation between what Jesus had to say about the kingdom of God and the use of parables. It's the, it's the medium and the message again. One of the questions of the book is, you know, why did Jesus use parables? Why didn't he come straight out and give a sermon as a word and say uh-huh. what he wanted to say? Is there some appropriateness between the parables as a medium and the kingdom of God as a message? And the reason I correlate them is that Jesus's message about the kingdom of God is that it is here now, present, but only insofar as we, that is his hearers, participate in it, collaborate with God in it. It's not kind of sitting there like a like an empty church, as it were, waiting for people to, to come in. And if they don't come in, it's still there. It's a collaborative kingdom. And of course, the function of a parable is to lure you, even seduce you, maybe even to provoke you into into thought, into participation, into thinking. So parables and a collaborative kingdom go very well together. In fact, to put it in a mouthful, parables are a participatory pedagogy for the kingdom. But maybe you can help me define some words there. Collaborative, you mean uh, that people are collaborating with God? Exactly. The best, the best one-line summary of that I know is from Archbishop Desmond Tutu in All Saints Episcopal Church in Pasadena, California in 1999, I think, where he said, God without you won't, you without God can't. That is the best, most succinct summary of Jesus' kingdom of God I've ever heard. It's as good a one-liner as Jesus ever pulled, and he was very good at one-liners. It, it insists that it's not, the kingdom of God is not a phenomenon, as I said, like an empty church, which would be there whether you entered or not. It is a collaboration between humanity and divinity, if you will, in which if we do nothing, nothing happens. It's not that we're waiting for God to do it by intervention, but God is waiting for us to do it by collaboration. So we do nothing, and what we get, well, well, it's kind of like a world of the 20th century. That's what the world looks like without God for me. My guest is Dr. John Dominic Crossan, a historical Jesus scholar. He was an ordained priest in the Roman Catholic Church from 1957 to 1969. Uh, He's Professor Emeritus of DePaul University in Chicago in his Department of Religious Studies, and he's talking with me via Skype from Florida about his new book, The Power of Parable, How Fiction by Jesus Became fiction about Jesus. And at the beginning of the book, you talk about the different kinds of parables that Jesus uses. Some are riddles, some are examples, and some are challenge parables. And challenge parables are are the most important. Can you tell me a little bit about uh, the difference between the three? Well, a riddle parable would be very often what we call an allegory. You're told something like Jesus in Mark 4, for example, the way Mark chapter 4 interprets the parable of the sower. You kind of know one thing for sure. It ain't about sowing. 
but you mightn't be certain what it's about. Now, Marx sort of decodes it as an allegory. Each element in there gets its own special meaning. And I suppose you would never guess all by yourself that the birds that pick up the seed by the path represent Satan. So that's sort of a riddle. And Marx interprets it you know, very, very harshly. If you don't get it, then you're kind of punished for not getting it. It's almost for Mark that Jesus tells parables because people don't don't get it and he's punishing them by giving them more they won't get. And that's a very unique uh, vision of the parables that you find only in Mark's gospel in chapter 4. Parables are sort of punishments for Mark. That's certainly not the way Luke sees them. In most of Luke, he imagines them as examples for moral behavior. You should go and do likewise. But challenge parables are a very delicate operation. We know them in the Christian Old Testament, for example, in the book of Ruth, to take one case, where you read a lovely story of Ruth. She's faithful to, to family and tradition, and you're all for her. And it's a beautiful pastoral story. And her firstborn child is a son, and it seems like everything is perfect. And then all of a sudden, you're told in the last line, almost like the scorpion tail, that she's the great-grandmother of David. And wait a minute, a Moabite woman is the great is the great-grandmother of David? But Moabites were never supposed to be allowed into the people of God, according to the book of Deuteronomy, as insisted by Ezra and Nehemiah after the Persian um, recovery in the 400s. So wait a minute, how, how can you have a story where God apparently approves a Moabite woman in the genealogy of David. That's what I mean by a challenge. It doesn't tell you Israelites should only marry Moabites. It doesn't tell you anything. It just tells you a single story that sort of makes you think, wait a minute, how, how, how could we pass a law of God that no Moabite or Ammonite can ever enter the people of God when we have this story? It's like a tiny, tiny pin dangerously close to a big balloon. And that's the function of a challenge parable. It's to make you think, to make you ponder your absolutes, religious, economic, social, or any type of absolute. Just make you think how sure your absolutes are. Uses subtlety and, and kind of inference. It's something, um, would a challenge parable then be the parable, say, of the leaven or the mustard seed that Jesus told? Yes, because most people do, would not think of mustard and the mustard seed, which is a kind of a dangerous takeover plant, as maybe the ideal for the kingdom. Maybe a cedar of Lebanon would suit much better, a beautiful cedar of Lebanon. So anything that challenges you to think is a typical... The classic one, of course, is the Good Samaritan, which we tend to think of as an example parable because we don't realize that in the ethnic context of the first century, good... Samaritan was not so much cliche as it is for us, but sort of oxymoron. The Jews and Samaritans, as we are known from the New Testament, were rather ancient ethnic opponents, enemies. So when Jesus tells a story to his Jewish fellows about a Samaritan of all people stopping while their own good good guys, as it were, the priest and the Levite, don't stop, and as it were, the bad guy stops. That's a perfect example 
of a challenge parable. It's like the Moabite woman as heroine in Ruth and this good Samaritan as hero in the Jesus story. And you find the same in stories like Job or, or Jonah, where, where the polarities of your presumption are kind of reversed. My guest is John Dominic Crossan, author of the book, The Power of Parable, How Fiction by Jesus Became Fiction About Jesus. If you're just joining us, this is A Religion for Life, and I'm John Shuck. And um, in the second part of the book, you, you show how each gospel author tells the parable of Jesus in a unique way. In fact, I, I quoted you uh, from your book in a recent sermon, and you wrote, The Jesus of Mark dies in human agony. The Jesus of John dies in divine radiance. Uh, that's quite a difference. What does that difference mean? It really is a difference, and it's not a question of which is right and wrong. They're both right. If you, with traditional Christianity, view that Jesus is 100% human, then Mark is telling you how, how such a person dies. And it must have been very consoling, by the way, to Mark's people who seem to be under persecution and a sort of a Pollyanna death is not very helpful for them. On the other hand, John, whose people seem more under, oh, I don't know, not persecution so much as discrimination maybe, has Jesus really almost conduct his own execution. He, he's really in charge. The graphic illustration is he's prostrate on the ground in the Garden of Gethsemane in Mark, but when they soldiers and their entire spira in Greek, that's 600, a cohort, come to take him, they end up flattening their faces on the ground. So we kind of miss the point when we squish all of this stuff into a sort of an Irish stew of gospel instead of saying, okay, what message, how does Mark parabolize, if I can make that word, John, uh, Jesus, and then how does Luke or how does Matthew do it differently? and appreciate the differences because that's what they want, not the mistakes or the errors or the anything else. They're all quite smart enough to know what the other guy said. And the people who put them in were smart enough to know there was four of them. They could do the math. So we've kind of been avoiding that. And I don't think we should. There's four versions of the own, one and only Jesus. One of the challenges, I think, in reading the Gospels has been to determine what kind of literature it is. Uh, the, the common view is that the Gospels are journalistic uh, reports. Uh, the Gospel writers as witnesses were kind of embedded with the Jesus campaign. Uh, but because of the popularity of that view, miracles proved that Jesus was divine and so forth. But in, in your view, uh, events like walking on water, uh, stilling the storm, his resurrection and so forth are not things that happened nor are they things that the authors want us to believe happened. They're, they're parables, but we tend to be so literal-minded that we don't hear or read them as parables. Is that, is that close? It, it's, very, it's not just close. It's exact. I want to use the word parables because there's other words that people have used, and like a term like myth or something like that. It's not really helpful the way we use that term. But as I see it, most people, no matter how literally they read the New Testament, are not frightened or alarmed that Jesus makes up stories. I, I don't think, could be wrong on this, but I don't think most people who read the New Testament very literally think that, that well, you know, the prodigal son had to happen and the good Samaritan had to happen. It, mm -hmm. it has to be historically, literally true. I take it for granted they recognize parables. So 
I'm taking that good word <laughs> by Jesus and trying to make it a good word for Jesus. So that when you say, for example, that a story, be it the virginal conception of Jesus or the resurrection of Jesus, are parables, you're not saying they are nothing and you're not saying they're wrong. You're saying there's something that you must think about to understand, that they're not to be taken simply. Like, imagine somebody who came back after listening to Jesus' sore parable and thought they had learned about agriculture. You sort of laugh at them. You say, uh -huh. no, 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 you missed it completely. So the most profound things in the New Testament are parables. Example, in Jesus certainly died on a Roman cross. I consider that historically as valid as anything ever can be. But whether you see it as a good day for Roman law and order, as no doubt Pilate did, or the sacrificial death of the Son of God, is going to be how you parabolize it. And we can certainly say for Christians that Pilate got it wrong, but Pilate, were he here, would say, you guys got it wrong. Well, after 2,000 years, I'm not certain what he might say. But <laughs> the parable is what makes the event not only memorable, but important, participatory, rather than simply recording it as a piece of information, Jewish person crucified today. My guest is uh, John Dominic Crossan, a uh, historical Jesus scholar. He was uh, one of the founders of the Jesus Seminar, which was working to find uh, the historical person of Jesus. And your book, uh, Dr. Crossan, uh, an earlier book, Jesus, a Revolutionary Biography, uh, which was the popular version of your scholarly work, The Historical Jesus, really changed my thinking um, altogether. It was, it was one sentence in particular that did it. Uh, you wrote and I'm not sure if I'm quoting you directly, I'm remembering it, but you said the scandal was not that Jesus is Son of God, but that Jesus is Son of God, and you explained it to mean that the point of uh, the point is not that Jesus was or is a divine being. There are plenty of sons of God in those days, including Caesar. The challenge then and today is which God, so to speak, to follow, the God of Caesar known through military might and domination on one hand, or the God of Jesus, the peasant who preached about nonviolence and economic justice for the poor. And the gospel authors were taking symbols from empire and then inverting them to show that the real son of God, this peasant with an attitude, another wonderful phrase I think uh, that you coined, um, that that changed everything for me. Uh, when and how did you realize that? And was it a big deal for you as it was for me? It was a big deal. It was a profound deal, but it came very slowly, I suppose. In one sense, I, you know, I had five years of Greek and five years of Latin at a classical high school in Ireland. So all of that stuff was kind of there quietly. Now, nobody talked about Jesus and Caesar or anything like that, but I learned all about Caesar. So it was all kind of resting quietly somewhere at the back of my mind. Then when I began to learn more and more about the Roman backgrounds of Jesus and the matrix being not just Jesus within Judaism, which of course is right, but Jesus within Judaism within that's against the Roman Empire. Sort of a lot of stuff that was there came profoundly together, but not really, to be honest with you, as a as a shocking clash. It was, oh, oh yeah, of course, of course, of course. So I began to realize that the question that we very ask when very often ask when you think of Jesus as human and Jesus as divine, say, no, no, come on, we've had an enlightenment, a human being can't be divine. I say, yeah, but in the first century, in the pre-enlightenment world, 
they did accept that a human being, if that human being had done something of transcendental importance for the human race, could be raised up to divine status. That, like, whether we like it or not, that's their language. Mm -hmm. So then the problem was very clear for me. I could see why Caesar would be considered divine because he brought peace to the Roman Empire torn by 20 years of savage civil war. But then the real question, and it was a first century question, was the question Paul would have had to face. How could a peasant from Galilee have done anything of transcendental value for the human race? What kind of a claim was it? So what was important for me was that was the way they made a claim that Jesus was not only of sublime importance, but he was of more importance than Caesar and was in fact in <laughs> a replacement for Caesar, I'd always say, that his vision should replace Jesus's vision, that his vision of peace on earth should replace and must replace Caesar's vision of peace on earth. Those were the startling questions, which I kind of think we don't want to face today, John. It's mm -hmm. almost easier, let's, let's argue whether a human being can be divine. Let's, because, you know, we're never going to get anywhere there. Those who think yes will think yes and no, no. But supposing we reframe the claim as, do you think that peace on earth is obtained through victory or through justice? And that is what the first century debate was about. And that was the challenge that God hurled to the human race, as it were. With Jesus. Yeah, so I was thinking that maybe that language of Messiah or Son of God was part of the parabolic uh, telling of those who followed him. They're trying to find a way to fit him into their language. And I find it, to be honest with you, John, perfectly adequate. I think uh -huh. I can't prove this, but since every silver denarius in Israel would have had an image of Caesar on it, be it Augustus or Tiberius, that said he was Son of God. I can't see why it's not possible for somebody to say, well, look, I'm looking at this coin in my hand here. That guy up there, that Jesus of Nazareth, that's my idea of a son of God, not what's-his-face over there in, in Rome. Be because it's not, it's not as if it wasn't written on every coin. The, the mass medium of, of antiquity was the coinage. So it, it's us, I think, it's we who begin to mind, ooh, this is a strange name. Ooh, Paul must have invented this when he was busy inventing Christianity. You want to scream and say, no, no, it's on every statue, it's on every image of Caesar. You could no more get away from, from D.V. Filius, son of God, in the first century than we can get away from the, 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 the yellow arches of McDonald's. It's everywhere. And the real challenge of that was... What kind of God will you serve? What kind of God do you see in the world? Is it a God of victory and violence, or is it a God of nonviolence and justice? And we, we can, as you mentioned, we can put it all in kind of metaphysical speculation, but the real question, isn't it, to our time, even as well as the time of Jesus, is how are we going to live in this world? What, what values will we take? No, it really is. I mean, that's the question. And I, I think a lot of the metaphysical you know, speculation is not just accidentally a beautiful red herring to avoid facing that. Because in the first century, the question was, oh, I don't, don't want to trivialize it, but if you could imagine Caesar and Christ standing there having a debate and the audience is asking them, what's your platform? 
as it were, to be the savior of the world, which is one of the titles of Caesar. Okay, now you're, you're running for savior of the world, Christ and Caesar. What's your platform? What's your program? How are you different? There's only one world. We can only have one savior. I think exactly as we can summarize, I think, with absolute dignity and integrity, the program of Rome was peace through victory. The program of Jesus, coming straight out of the Torah and the prophets, was peace through justice. Justice meaning a fair distribution of God's world to all God's people. And Rome would have said, of course, we're, we're in the business of justice too, but you get justice after you get peace, and you get peace after you get victory, and you get victory after you have war. And of course, you go to war with the gods on your side, by all means. So two mighty programs were clashing, as they had been clashing in a way, within the, the biblical tradition, long before Jesus. Do you get peace on earth through victory? Which is what we still believe, of course, as we know. So it's not that Rome invented mm -hmm. it. It was there before Rome, and it was there in every empire that has ever existed since. You get peace through victory. Or do you think after all this time, maybe about 6,000 years now of experience, we think that peace through victory is a false god, that what we get is lull until the next round, which is always more violent than the preceding one. That's the way human history has worked. And so we might think this is a kind of a bankrupt vision and look for an alternative. And the alternative, of course, is already there and has been there, as I said, in the Torah of Israel. You get peace through justice. My guest has been uh, Dr. John Dominic Crossan, author of a new book, The Power of Parable, How Fiction by Jesus Became Fiction About Jesus. I, I'm just about out of time, but I want to ask you one more qu question, Dr. Crossan. Uh, you've been writing on Jesus and his parables for over 40 years. Is there anything in his parables that's that has surprised you lately? Yes, I think... I think when I started working on, oh, I think 1973, the first book I did was in parables, and the subtitle was The Challenge of the Historical Jesus. But I don't think I had a very good correlation between medium and message. I knew, of course, Jesus talked about the kingdom. I knew, of course, Jesus talked in parables. But I don't think I knew how close, how intimate was the relationship between his challenge parables and the kingdom both in terms of the participatory collaborative nature of both, and also in the fact that challenge parables are a nonviolent rhetoric. I can, can always make up a story in which, you know, I, I can call people names or something like that. But the challenge parable is a very delicate, gentle phenomenon. It is a little bit like that big small pin I said next to the big balloon, though. Mm -hmm. Very dangerous. But it doesn't prick the big balloon. It just makes the big balloon aware what could happen, what might happen. And so I think challenge parables and the kingdom message are dynamically intertwined together. And I think that's fairly new for me to realize. Dr. Crossan, thank you for being with me today on Religion for Life. It's been a delight. Always a pleasure, John. Thank you very much. 
You've been listening to Religion for Life, a program at the intersection of religion, social justice, and public life. I hope you enjoyed this series regarding various views of the historical Jesus. You can find links to podcasts for this series, Will the Real Jesus Please Rise, on the WETS website. Information about Religion for Life, including upcoming shows and links to podcasts, are available at religionforlife.me. You can follow Religion for Life on Facebook and Twitter. More information about my congregation can be found at fpcelizabethton.org. Religion for Life is a co-production of WETS-FM and WETS-HD1, Johnson City, Tennessee, and WEHC-FM, Emory, Virginia. Be well.